when God's prescription for my happiness and my prescription for my happiness collide, this is when we must trust God, we must submit to God, and we must uh, humble ourselves and believe that God is an all-wise, all-good God, and His prescription for my happiness is going to always be correct, and my prescription for my happiness will frequently fail. Hello, friends. Welcome. Thank you so much for listening. You know, there's something meaningful about the fact that everybody wants to be happy. Everybody is trying to attain happiness. And that may look different for different people, you know, kind of like uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that if you are drowning, you your happiness is just in getting your next breath. So you, we start at the bottom with our uh, physiological needs, our physical needs, and then our need for safety, then our need to be loved and to belong, and then our desire to be respected, and then our desire to self-actualize to become the best us we can be and everybody's pursuing different um different things right but the goal is always happiness and i think that speaks to the fact that we were created by god and we were created for union with god psalm 16:11 says this you make known to me the path of life in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore and so we were hardwired for joy. We were created to be in God's presence. We were created to be in union with God. And so we we pursue now because we have fallen um, and because of our sinful state, we're still seeking that pleasure. We're still we're still seeking that joy, but we seek it in places where it can be found, and that is the sinful state of our human condition, our brokenness, is that we try to find our joy and our happiness and our satisfaction outside of God. So to be hardwired for joy can work to our advantage once we realize that God is the only true source of joy, or it can also be very dangerous for us because whatever we think will make us happy, we're going to pursue that thing. So if you have a terrorist who thinks murdering a bunch of people is going to make him happy, he is going to pursue that because he's hardwired for joy. If we think destroying people is going to make us happy, then that's what we will pursue. If we think that our union with God is going to make us happy, then we pursue Him. So, when God's prescription for my happiness and my prescription for my happiness collide, this is when we must trust God, we must submit to God, and we must uh, humble ourselves and believe that God is an all-wise, all-good God, and His prescription for my happiness is going to always be correct, and my prescription for my happiness will frequently fail. Of course, we know the famous proverb in Proverbs fourteen twelve: there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And um, in Proverbs twelve fifteen, it says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. Proverbs 21, 2 says, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. 
Jeremiah 10, 23 says, I know, O Lord, that the way of a man is not in himself, that it is not in a man who walks to direct his steps. So it is God who made us and not we ourselves. Psalm 100, verse 3, we were created by God. And so we, his prescription for our happiness is always going to be right because he knows what we were created for. And he is all wise, all loving, all good. And so God gives us, even when we're his enemies, God offers us a way to return to the joyful center of the universe, which is God himself. He offers us a way to come back to himself through his son, Jesus Christ, and he offers to rule and reign over our life. In Romans chapter 14 and verse 17, Paul says, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So there's a progression there. There there must be righteousness. And if my view of what is right conflicts with God's view of what is right, then I must surrender. I cannot live out of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. That was the original sin of mankind was to determine for themselves what was good and what was evil. It wasn't the tree of evil. It was the tree of good and evil. It was the autonomy to decide for themselves what was right and what was wrong versus living in dependence with God and letting God direct us into his righteousness. And so that rebellion, that desire to determine for ourselves good and evil is what has led to all of the brokenness in the world. But praise God because of God's great love, because of his unbelievable goodness and kindness and compassion and generosity, God still holds himself out to us and invites us to return to his goodness, his good rule, his good reign. The Bible says, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. And so when God reigns and his righteousness reigns, his way of doing things reigns, that is what brings peace and joy into our lives. It's his kingdom. So the kingdom of God is not when we die and go to heaven. The kingdom of God is when the ruling presence of God is manifested in our lives. So when I seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, his right way of doing things, then everything else in my life lines up. Everything else is added to me, like Jesus said in Matthew 6.33. So I let the gift of righteousness that God has given to me, it's not a righteousness that I earn by doing righteous things. I receive a gift of righteousness by faith It's a grace gift of God. God gives it to me just out of his generosity, out of his graciousness. It's total grace. And I become righteous by faith. And then I let that gift of righteousness that God has given to me bear fruit in my life. So a life source brings forth fruits. The DNA of an apple tree brings forth apples. The DNA of a righteous seed brings forth righteousness. And that's what happens to us when we get born again. We get this new spiritual DNA, and God intends for that DNA to bear fruit. And it's when the righteousness of God is 
bearing fruit in our lives, that we experience his peace and we experience the joy that it's, that Paul talks about there, the joy in the Holy Spirit, that God is reigning in us, that we are united with him, that we are living out of our connection with him. And so we have peace and we have joy in our faith. Like Paul says in Romans 15, 13, he says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. And so that is how the rule of God bears fruit in our lives and how uh, we can fulfill that desire that we have that we're hardwired for joy. And so we have to become convinced that God is the source of joy in our lives because we're hardwired to pursue whatever we think is going to bring us joy. If we think it's going to be alcohol, if we think it's going to be sex, if we think it's going to be money, we're going to pursue those things. But we have to become convinced in our minds that God is the greatest source of joy in the universe so that we can make decisions not based on the emotions of our flesh. It doesn't mean that we won't have the emotions in our flesh. Paul says in Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So it doesn't mean we won't have the desires of the flesh, that our flesh is still broken, it's still fallen, and until we go to be with the Lord or until we get He, he comes back and we get our resurrected bodies, we are still going to have to resist the flesh. But we can know in our logical part of our mind that those things aren't going to satisfy me. Those things aren't going to make me happy. And that can make resisting the temptations, which are generally uh, happening in our emotions, the emotional temptations that come through our flesh, it can make resisting them much easier if we have fixed our heart on God as our source of joy. And if we have resolved in our minds, in the logical part of our brains, that, you know what, there's nothing in this universe that is going to make me happy outside of God and His righteousness. C.S. Lewis writes about this with his characteristic clarity in Mere Christianity. In Book 2, Chapter 3, the chapter called The Shocking Alternative, he writes this, What Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could, quote, be like gods, end quote, could set up on their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt, has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. The reason why it can never succeed is this. God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol, and would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. That is the key to history. 
Terrific energy is expended, civilizations are built up, excellent institutions devised, but each time something goes wrong. Some fatal flaw always brings the selfish and cruel people to the top and it all slides back into misery and ruin. In fact, the machine conks. It seems to start up all right and runs a few yards, and then it breaks down. They are trying to run it on the wrong juice. That is what Satan has done to us humans. And what did God do? First of all, he left us conscience, the sense of right and wrong, and all through history there have been people trying, some of them very hard, to obey it. None of them ever quite succeeded. Secondly, he sent the human race what I call good dreams. I mean those queer stories scattered all through the heathen religions about a God who dies and comes to life again, and by his death has somehow given new life to men. Thirdly, he selected one particular people and spent several centuries hammering into their heads the sort of God he was, that there was only one of him and that he cared about right conduct. These people were the Jews, and the Old Testament gives an account of the hammering process. Then comes the real shock. Among these Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. He claims to forgive sins. He says he has always existed. He says he is coming to judge the world at the end of time. Now let us get this clear. Among pantheists like the Indians, anyone might say that he was a part of God or one with God. There would be nothing very odd about it. But this man, since he was a Jew could not mean that kind of God. God, in their language, meant the being outside the world, who had made it and was infinitely different from anything else. And when you have grasped that, you will see that what this man said was quite simply the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. One part of the claim tends to slip past us unnoticed because we have heard it so often that we no longer see what it amounts to. I mean the claim to forgive sins, any sins. Now, unless the speaker is God, this is really so preposterous as to be comic. We can all understand how a man forgives offenses against himself. You tread on my toes, I forgive you. You steal my money, and I forgive you. But what should we make of a man, himself unrobbed and untrodden on, who announces that he forgave you for treading on another man's toes and stealing other men's money? Asinine fatuity is the kindest description we should give of his conduct. Yet this is what Jesus did. He told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in all offenses. This makes sense only if he was really the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. In the mouth of any other speaker who is not God, these words would imply what I can only regard as a silliness and conceit unrivaled by any other character in history. Yet, and this is the strange significant thing, even his enemies, when they read the Gospels, do not usually get the impression of silliness and conceit. Still less do unprejudiced readers. Christ says that he is humble and meek, and we believe him, not noticing that if he were merely a man, humility and meekness are the very last characteristics we could attribute to some of his sayings. 
I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God, end quote. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So I know that was a long quote, uh, and uh, the end there is is quite the famous C.S. Lewis quote, but the beginning is really what I was after, that we were created for joy. We were hardwired for joy, and that joy is to be found nowhere outside of communion and union with God himself. Catherine Kuhlman tells a story of when she was a little girl and boys would go swimming out in the pond where she lived. And she said the girls were uh, too scared to get in the water and they'd put one foot in the water and they thought it was too cold. And so it felt so cold to them just putting one foot in, but the boys would, you know, take off their shirts and they would jump in and go completely in and they would have a great time jumping in. And she talks about that as an illustration of some people get just enough of God to be miserable. And there's the only way to find pleasure in communion and union with God is to go completely in, to dive in, to to be immersed in his presence, which I think is why the Christian rite of entrance into the Christian faith is baptism, that it's immersion, that it's the burial of your old self, it's the starting of a new life, it's the complete giving over of myself and getting a new identity so that God is not just a part of my life, but God is my life. And that is where we discover that joy that we were hardwired for. Thank you so much for listening. God bless you. We hear your tenderness In every star that glows In every cell that grows It's clear your excellence God, you're beautiful